Anything, babe? All right. Well, hey, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 131. Psalm 131. We're continuing our series through the Psalms. It's called Summer Through the Psalms. And I think that this is a very timely passage for us right now, given where we are. My prayer has been uh, that my tone is right for this psalm. I tend to be a guy that, that starts to get into it, and I belt it out a little bit too loudly. This is a psalm where my tone needs to come down a little bit. Pray for me right now that that's actually a possibility. Um, many of us, many of you, are feeling unrest right now. There is personal pain for some of you that just is bearing down. It feels like the equivalent of just like a blizzard moving through your soul. Um, We think of some of the national things that are coming down upon the church, that are coming down upon the people of our nation. We think of the tragedy in Charleston about three or four weeks ago when nine people were gunned down at the African Methodist Church. Brothers and sisters gunned down. And it just leaves us a little torn inside. We think about the eight or nine churches now that have been burned down in the wake of that. There's been Supreme Court rulings that for some of us are shocking us. For some of us, they're making us angry. Some of us are, are sad over those things. There, there's unrest right now in the church. There's a changing of tides in some ways. And because of this, because of this, it's a wonderful time for the people of God to set their eyes on the person of God. Amen? A God who has not shifted even one millimeter off of his throne. Will you remember that today? Will you believe that today in the times that we're living in? That God has not been moved or shaken or surprised or shocked about any of the the personal or the national unrest in our lives? In some ways, this is the equivalent of dropping a basket of flower petals on a boulder. And that's not to dismiss it. It's just that God is immovable and his plans for his people cannot be altered by the rumblings in our heart, the rulings of our courts, or the the ruthless shootings and church burnings from our enemies and our opponents. In fact, his love for the church will become even more palatable, even more seen, even more felt as these things happen, as they bear down on us, and as we as the church are driven to our knees in prayer. So will we respond in prayer as people of hope? Will we do that? It's true that we are living in a postmodern, post-Christian society. That is not debatable. And if it is, just meet me after the service and we'll debate it and you'll lose. But the Christian's ultimate reality is lived out post-resurrection. We identify with and define ourselves by a risen Lord. 
We don't look for comfort in the words of men, but from the words of the one who sent his son to save all men from lies. That's our hope. And what's interesting is that the Bible, what we're going to be looking into this morning, because we're a church and we preach and we read and we put our hope in God's word, the Bible doesn't go into silent mode when unrest surfaces. Jesus said, in case you think I came into the world to send you all down a path of skittle rainbows, riding my little ponies, let me just say that trouble will find you in this world. That's what he said. That is what Jesus told us. So when breakdowns occur, the Bible doesn't say that you shouldn't be sad. It tells us that you shouldn't be surprised. But Jesus doesn't just leave it there. He also says you shouldn't be afraid because I've decisively overcome the breakdowns and the heartbreak and the brokenness of the world on the cross. That's what I've done. That's what the cross has been able to accomplish in a people that have now turned from being a people of despair into a people of hope. And so our posture and our, and our eyes and our heart, they can be at a place that is moved and shifted towards the one who will accomplish everything that he says he's going to do. And there ain't nobody that's going to be able to change that or alter that. That's the power of the cross. Here's what the cross doesn't do. The cross doesn't produce a cockiness in us. The cross doesn't produce an, an anger in us. It doesn't produce this strut, you know, this cocky strut in those that have been saved by it. Because God's end game isn't to raise up a bunch of Vin Diesels from Furious 7. But a quiet, confident, contented, hopeful, humble people whose hearts are ever fixed on the unwavering and steadfast promises of God. And what we'll see in the psalm today is a king named David, who this psalm was written of and for and about and from, if that made any sense, who didn't become any of those things that I just mentioned because God sheltered him from the storms and the battles of life. And when I say battles of life, David fought literal battles filled with just this primitive brutal combat that resulted in massive amounts of bloodshed and loss of life. This was not a guy sprawled out in his parents' basement playing the latest version of Halo. What we'll see is the heart of a man who has developed a quiet confidence and a humble, hopeful assurance in God to be who God is. And as distinct awareness that he's living under the covering of God's divine grace. David understood that. I want us to understand that this morning. We've been going through some different psalms since June. Psalms come in different types. The type of this psalm is what's called a song of ascent. Psalms are songs. And this is typically called a song of ascent, which were thought to be songs that pilgrims would sing or recite as they ascended to Jerusalem for various festivals of worship. 
So many interpreters, before we get into this passage, they believe this was David's response to King Saul and those in his court that were accusing David of pridefully and ambitiously pursuing the kingdom that he knew God would one day give him. Now, of course, after we read this, David will show us that the contrary was actually true. And when you look back at his life, you know that David never went after the throne during Saul's reign. He knew the throne was his. He knew God had given him something, but it was something that was going to happen in the future when God had designed it to happen. So for David, it wasn't something he had to go after. It was something that was given to him. So he was able to wait. He was able to keep his life in context because there was a future hope awaiting him, which would be that he was going to gain the kingship and the Lord was going to use him and work through him for the people of Israel. So my hope, my prayer is that God would shape, that he would develop our hearts like he did with David's. And I think this is a, just an amazing psalm for us to see him do that. So let's read Psalm 131. It says this. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. And then he finishes by saying, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. It's the word of God. Interesting language as we get into what's probably going to be the shortest psalm that we go through this summer. Other psalms, when you read them, they speak of lifting their eyes up to the hills. So other times David has written psalms, like in Psalm 121, where he says, I'm lifting my eyes to the hills. And and other psalms speak of this upward gaze and this approach where we fix our gaze on God's glory and on his provision and on his deliverance and on his salvation to be people who look upward like a child looking up at a parent to receive encouragement and comfort and security. So the phrasing here at first, it sounds comparatively strange, but it's because David has his heart and eyes fixed on God that he begins to understand his place in that picture. Because what we know about the heart and eyes is this. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that deception actually is birth and comes from the heart. So it's the root of our deception. It's the root of us believing lies rather than the truth. 1 John 2 tells us pride actually enters through the eyes. It's what trips our head to believing things that aren't true about God, which then take root in our heart. But David's heart has become so lifted to God that it becomes a transformed heart of humility. And that he doesn't have haughty eyes because his gaze upon God has dimmed his self-assurance over the years. David remembers his finiteness, his limitations. He knows who he isn't. That's a good question for us today, isn't it? Do we remember who we are in light of who God is? It's a good thing for us to meditate on and contemplate. Because we're given a picture all through Scripture of God's greatness and His majesty and His glory. And here's the issue. We don't have any of that. 
David understood that. It's a worthy thing for us to understand how little we understand in the presence of an all-knowing, all-seeing God. Proverbs 9 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, knowing how much we don't know and remembering that God is Lord over all is wisdom. David was humbled by the realization that his mind couldn't fathom what only God's mind could. In his response here, it recalls Job chapter 42 when God rebukes Job. You remember the story of Job, a guy who had everything taken away from him in the face of him becoming more holy and more self-aware of who God was. And Job replies to God after God says, who are you to question anything that I do? And he replies after he's been humbled and he says, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I didn't know. That was Job. Do you find your mind primarily occupied with things of which are really beyond you? Of things which you have no hand in changing or altering? I mean, how much do we worry about things that are just out of our control, out of our power? I mean, if you've been on social media for even 30 seconds this month, you've seen it. You've seen how quickly people's faith in God can turn into fear of man because they think somehow there's been a transfer of power. And there's a struggle in all of us that wants to understand the mind of God. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. Would like to know what he got planned. Would like to know what he's thinking beyond what I know in here. Interesting that I don't even really know all of what's in here about what he's thinking. But I would like to understand the mind of God. And here's the thing. We're given insights all through Scripture. God reveals to us everything that we actually can know about him. But what we've been given in some ways, really, is an introduction to the greatest novel ever written, the story of God. We only get small glimpses of the story, though, and that just really, really bothers us. David here is saying, I don't let my mind get cluttered and distracted with things that God has not given me the mind to comprehend. That's why the imagery of a, of a child-parent relationship, I think, is so important for us to understand in contrast to our relationship with God. Here's what I mean. When I was six, my dad didn't sit me down with his CPA and start explaining how the new tax laws worked. Right? When I was eight, my mom didn't attempt to explain all of the relational and communication issues that might come up after I'd been married 10 years. I wouldn't have had the capacity to understand any of that. It was better that I trusted them with the knowledge that needed to be kept by them. Because by doing that, it would do something to my heart. David says in verse 2, But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. We get the image of a nursing child that just cries frantically when they want to be fed, and then the struggle that they might have when it's time to move on to solid food. And yet, when a kid moves on to solid food, it's a sign of growth, right? 
Its body is now reaching the next step in its digestive maturity. I just spent a couple of weeks with my two-year-old niece, Elsie, and she's different now than she was a year ago, when her entire life revolved around when she was going to be fed, when that bottle was going to get just stuck in her mouth. It's different now for her. She's matured. There's a different posture in my niece. There's a different level of trust that she has with her parents, which means she doesn't just fall apart every time it's feeding time. Not always. David is saying, like a child who has moved on to solid food, I've matured. I understand more of who God is. I trust in God to provide me with what I need. And then in verse 3, he says his hope is that Israel would share this same calm and quiet hope when he says, Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So as the Israelites ascended to Jerusalem, they would recite this psalm and be reminded who was still feeding and caring for them. They didn't need to be fearful or stirring or concerned with things that were outside of their control because they were a people with a long-standing hope. They could look back at the love and reliability of a God who had long-term plans for them in the future. So I want to lay out four implications, four marks of maturity for us that we see in the short psalm. Four marks of what a quiet confidence might look like to us as we read something like this, as we hear from David's heart. I read a passage like this and I just think, oh Lord, if I could only do this, if I could only be this, if I only identified with somebody who had and who lived out this kind of quiet hope and assurance and confidence and trust. But I think this passage is saying these four things. Number one, it's telling us to be contemplative. Notice in the beginning, David says, Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. David removes himself from the noise and speaks to God and says, here's where I'm at. Here's my case before you. When's the last time you had an honest conversation with the Lord? When's the last time any of you had an honest conversation with the Lord? When you reflect on your life and you come to some realizations that need to be brought before the Lord? Will we stop stirring for even a minute to do that? Lay our lives before the Lord? Open this book and say, speak to me? Will we do that? Will we be contemplative or contemplative, whatever you choose, before the Lord? David was was contemplative. Number two, David was contrite. He was contrite before the Lord. Psalm 138.6 says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. Remembering your place before the Lord and his place above you. I always think it's hilarious when you talk to someone who gets a new job and you ask them how things are going after a few weeks and they say, I'm basically running the company now. It's like, no, you're not. You're not. How was it running 20 years before you got there three weeks ago? You know, but there's sort of this elevated status about who we are and how we are as we come before 
the Lord. And it's because we forget who our boss is. We're not the boss. God's not a human boss who forgets or who drops the ball. We don't have to compensate for the Lord. We can walk in the things he's given us because he walks before us. Let's not ever be prideful enough to think that somehow we're running this show. We never are, and thank God we never will. Our lives have a ruler. Our church has a senior pastor, and it's not Big R here. His name is Jesus. To humble yourself means you put yourself under someone who is over all. And in our case, that's Jesus. And we see that with David. He's contemplative. He comes before the Lord. But he's also contrite. There's a humility there. He remembers his place. Three, he's also content. So this is a passage telling us to be contemplative, contrite, and be content in the Lord. I don't know if anything is more difficult than that for me. I don't know that I struggle with anything more than contentedness. And for some reason, when I'm on vacation, that seems to be driven home to me more than at any other time, my lack of contentment. But what is contentment? How do we define contentment? Is it a lack of ambition? Is it just settling for something? David describes it as a quiet and calm soul. He describes it as being secure in the care of a mother's arms, trusting that his needs will be taken care of. And we know that ambition is a tricky thing. It's tricky. Ambition is an unquenchable desire and pursuit for something that the Lord has not granted us. That would be sinful ambition. The example of David was that he was patient as the Lord took him from shepherd boy to shepherd king. He was content. So what drives us to contentment? Well, it's a, it's a heartfelt trust in God's trustworthy provision. We're not trusting in a guy that's ever going to not do what he says he's going to do. So for us, as we look through Scripture and we see the ways that the Lord has provided for His people, we need to be grateful for the things that we have and then glad, somehow, for the things that we haven't been given because they're most likely things that would have not been good for us. We need to remember that part of how God deals with the ungodly by giving them exactly what they want, which ironically is what proves to be their undoing. Most of the time, the wicked get what they want. And Christians just go, why are the wicked getting what they want? Well, because God gives the wicked what they want to fulfill his plan. The wicked prosper. Prosper how? Well, by getting the things they pursue, which is the occasion for God's wrath because they've not pursued God. And those are harsh words, but it's how God works in the hearts of those who do not have hearts for Him. But for the Christian, the mark of maturity, the mark of having a quiet confidence before the Lord is to be contemplative, to be contrite, 
to be content and to be confident. He said, from this time forth, Israel, let your confidence and hope be in the Lord forever. And here's the thing. Israel had a history of not doing this. They were kind of like the Duncan yo-yos of the faith. One day they're serving God. The next day they're selling their souls to foreign and false gods. Our struggle comes from a suspicion and an unbelief that God is going to dash our hopes and just crush our confidence. Confidence comes from knowing who we're not. When we're being tried and tested, like Israel constantly was, our tendency seems to be to withdraw our hope and confidence in God and to place it in idols instead. And here's why. One of the reasons why. Because we've redefined hope as a momentary wish fulfillment rather than the long-standing promise that it is from God. And the problem with that is that the Bible defines hope as something we can't see because we don't hope for what we already see. If we did, faith would be unnecessary. And then one of the things we do is that we mistake confidence for cockiness. But cockiness is just self-assurance born from insecurity. Confidence, on the other hand, is assurance born from experience. It would be God's aim for Christians to have a confidence that comes from an assurance that God will remain God. And the Christian can trust that God will remain God. In other words, if you put your hope in a person whose words will not change because by nature he cannot change then you can live with a quiet confidence that God will always love you, always listen to you, never leave you, and never lie to you. That's a lot of L's, but it's all true. Some of you are hanging on to a very thin thread of hope because it's attached to an object. And when that object or that wish fulfillment doesn't materialize for you, your hope is just dashed. And your confidence is crushed. David's encouragement was for Israel to set their hope on God and put their confidence in him, not so all their wishes would come true today, but because God's eternal plan for their life would not fail tomorrow. That was his encouragement towards God's people, the people of Israel. As Israel ascended to Jerusalem this song reminded them that they were anticipating the day when an eternal king from the throne of David would reign forever. Israel's ultimate hope, like our ultimate hope, would come in Jesus. Their hope wasn't simply for a season or even a lifetime, but what David's advocating for here is an eternal hope. And when you go to the New Testament, when you go to a book like Luke, he says this. He says this hope has been fulfilled. Uh, when he's talking to Mary, when the angel talks to Mary before Jesus is born, this is what he says about Jesus. He says he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. David was saying hope for something that is coming that will be eternal So the reason why our lives can be once characterized by contriteness, by contentedness and confidence is because we have the same past 
the same present and future hope that Israel did through Jesus Christ. That's why this applies to us. And here's the thing, and here's what I struggle with, and here's what you struggle with, is that we are a future-obsessed culture. We're obsessed by the future. I'm not talking about because Star Wars is coming out in December and all of that kind of stuff. I know we like sci-fi. I'm going beyond that. I'm saying we are a future-obsessed culture. We're obsessed with trying to know and basing our life and basing the affections of our hearts on things that we can't know. And there's some irony in that, because the only future we can actually know and that we're given and have any certainty of is the one we have with God. We have a future that's knowable. For those who put their trust and hope in God through Jesus Christ for now and forever, our future will be with God on a new earth, with a new body, enjoying a glorified version of the new life we've been given in Jesus Christ today and then forever. Why is it that with a future this far-reaching and certain, we are so preoccupied with futures so short and unknown? Do we realize that in Christ we have to redefine what the term setback means for us? When we got home from our trip uh, last night, I turned on the shower and realized that, dude, this water was not getting any hotter, which meant that the pilot light went out on our, on our water heater, and I had to literally become a scientist because I'm just out on all that stuff. And not having any hot water for an hour was a bit of a setback for a tired, jet-lagged husband and wife coming back home from California. But it didn't make the house any more worthless. I didn't throw up my hands and say, we have to move, babe. The house isn't working anymore. This is it. No, no warm water for an hour. I think we should just put it up for sale, move in next door with the Steiners, and then when we find something, we'll be good to go. Our confidence in God gets shaken when it's God we're not confiding in. So here is my encouragement and my questioning to you, to me, to all of us, to Substance Church. Will you stop stirring? Will you quiet yourself before the Lord? Will you humble yourself? Will you be content in His provision for the present? Will you be confident that there's nothing in this world or in your life that is not part of His good and unfailing plan? This doesn't mean we're uncaring. It doesn't mean we're apathetic. It doesn't mean we're ambivalent about what goes on around us. We can't be. So Christians aren't people that build a bubble and just say, whatever, Charleston, whatever Supreme Court ruling, whatever, whatever, whatever. That's not the posture of a Christian. But we're not hanging our spiritual hats on those things. The Christian is not blissfully unaware. He just never lets his awareness of God become obscured. You know, we were sad to have to miss the balloon fest because it's, 
a pretty cool thing. It's pretty unique to our town. And as I woke up this morning, I heard that big, you know, that big sound, that big psh. I don't know what that is. I guess when they're pulling, letting the gas, bringing them up into the air. I, I know, I, I'm, I'm not a balloon expert. Um, but, you know, it's weird. I was just thinking, and, it, and it's so funny that there's just so little that keeps those balloons in the air, isn't there? It's just some air. And I was thinking about how in Christ we have so much to keep us grounded. And yet, some of you have lives like those balloons. We just keep pulling, a little more air comes out. You're hoping you have enough to keep floating. You hope you have enough to just keep you up for a little bit longer. You continue to stir. You don't come before the Lord the way David has come before the Lord. You're not taking stock of who you are right now. You're not reminding yourself of who God is right now and that there's nothing in your life that can't be accounted for if you have Christ in it. And so you're like that balloon. And at some point, the air is going to run out. And what are you going to do if you're not grounded in the hope of the gospel? So my encouragement to us this morning is that we would contemplate where we are. We'd come before the Lord with contriteness. We would learn to be confident in the promises of God. There is no other hope for us. And some of you need to stop floating above the issues that you face in your life and the things that are just causing so much friction in your heart. And you need to come before the Lord like David has come before the Lord. You need to start believing in the hope that you were given when you received Christ. And if that hope doesn't exist in your life, quit thinking you received Christ. What are we doing here? I mean, what are we doing here? We want to be a people of God that is holy, bowed before the throne of the person of God through Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray right now. We're going to close with a song. And the reason why we close with a song is because this is a way that the church, the people of God, respond to God's word. That's why we close with a song, because we want something to happen to our hearts in the way that we respond vocally and verbally. We want to have a way to express our hearts back to God for the word that he's just given to us. That's why we always close with a song, in case you ever wondered why we did that. I'm going to hang out up here in this area after the service for a little while. Um, if you're new with us, we have a cafe here on my left, and we'd love you to join us, have a bagel on us, and just hang out, maybe get to know some of us. Um, we just like to do that on Sundays, so you are welcome. We hope you stay. But I'm going to be hanging out up here, and um, man, if any of you guys have anything you want to talk about, if there's anything you want to pray about, man, come up. I'm, I'm just a dude with, with too tight of pants that are too high on me, and I need to lose 10 pounds. I mean, I, that's who I am. So don't let any of that intimidate you. 
And don't worry about anybody else seeing you do that because maybe they should see you do that. So let's talk. If any of this has struck you, because I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you after the service today. And then I'll put my arm around you and we'll get donuts afterwards. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that you provide so sufficiently for us. And when we read a psalm like this, we're struck by David's posture towards you. And we realize that there's just not a lot about us that's very humble. There's not a lot about us that has much confidence in you. There's not a lot about us that is very content with what you've given us. Lord, we pray that you would waken something in our hearts. We pray that your spirit would stir something in us. Lord, we pray that this could be a day where we realize the things and the people and the events and the decisions and the tragedies and the things that we've put so much hope and heart and hopelessness in. Lord, that you would reverse those things and remember who it is that has died for those things. Lord, we pray that you would move our hearts back to Jesus. That we would trust you. That we would believe in the work that you did and are doing. Lord, that we can have a thrill in our souls as we are quiet before you and remember that nothing can alter your good, gracious, unfailing plans. Lord, thank you for the gospel that this is what accomplishes this for us. We're not a people that doesn't have any hope. We're not a people that should be pitied more than all men because of the cross of Christ. But I pray for anybody that is stirring with that. I pray for me who is stirring with that, that you would help me. You'd help all of us to see you, to believe you. Or receive our song as we sing it to you and make it real in our hearts and in our lives, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Hey, why don't you stand with me?